Brother Mark Biles has the booklet for this evening's study. The booklet on building our faith in the inspiration of the Bible. This will be our first night on this booklet. If you need one, please uh, raise your hand. Appreciate very much this opportunity to study uh, together. These studies on Sunday night are quite a bit different, but important. We are seeking to build our faith and help others build their faith um, first in the existence of God and then in the inspiration of the Bible. And then the booklet after this will be on the deity of Jesus, all that he claimed to be and all that he is, the Son of God. So we're working through these booklets. Let me emphasize we're working through these booklets. So we'll be reading some scripture together and answering the scripture and trying to notice the comments. The first booklet we needed to add some Thoughts to it. This one is more self-teaching, and the next one also will be more self-teaching. And so we'll just get right into the booklet uh, this evening. There's an introductory part here that we will notice, and then we'll get into the actual uh, substance of the lesson itself. On page two of your booklet, notice under the introduction... When one accepts the reasonable possibility of a divine being, it seems logical that such a being would seek to communicate with his uh, creation. And so the purpose of this booklet is to show the possibility of that and the evidence that that has happened uh, through the scriptures, through uh, the Bible. When Jesus met uh, Satan in the wilderness... Satan first said to him, If you be the Son of God, command these stones to be made bread. And you remember what Jesus said. He said, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Those words that come from the mouth of God, where are they? If those words are not contained in the Bible, and for us today especially the New Testament, then where are those words? What, what are the other sources? The Bible stands alone as, um, as the book of God. And this is what we're seeking to, to not only prove, but to uh, know how to communicate uh, in this regard. So still here in the introduction, it says, page two, few books claim a divine origin. Before we examine the Bible, we should ask, does the Bible claim to be from God? And it certainly does. And we're looking at just a few of these verses that claim that. The Bible does claim to be from God. For example, 2 Timothy 3 and verse 16, Paul says, All scripture is given by inspiration of God. It is given by inspiration of God. And it is profitable for doctrine and for reproof and for correction and instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto every good work. This is why we have such confidence in uh, the Scriptures. And then from 2 Peter 1, uh, 20 and 21, 
The scripture does not come by the will of man. The scripture does not come by the will of man. But holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the what? Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit. 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21 makes these statements. Nehemiah chapter 9 and verse 30. God testified to man by placing his spirit in his prophets. In his prophets. God testified to man by placing... His spirit in his prophets. So as the prophet spoke, it was the very words of God. And also as they wrote down their writings, both Old Testament and New Testament, uh, these also are the words of God. Paul from 1 Corinthians 2, 12 and 13. The things Paul taught were not from words of men, but again from the Holy Spirit. From the Holy Spirit. And we'll take time to read some passages um, together here in just a few minutes. But this is mainly introductory, introductory thoughts. From the book of Genesis chapter 1, there is an emphasis on the phrase, God said. God said. We'll see again and again. And not just in Genesis 1, but really all throughout the scripture you'll find. And God said, or thus says the Lord, thus says the Lord, God said, the Holy Spirit uh, teaches and that kind of thing. In fact, the note here, there are over 2,700 claims of divine authorship found in the Bible. And so the idea is to get it in our minds that the Bible does claim to have a divine heavenly origin. All right, let's turn now to page uh, four. Page four, and let's be turning our Bibles over to Isaiah chapter 40. Let's turn together to Isaiah chapter 40. We'll just read two verses here. Isaiah 40 and two verses. You might recall this is an emphasis on the greatness of God and that how that not only man but the idols that man might set up on earth are in no comparison to the qualities of God. Isaiah 40:21 and 22 notice this Isaiah 40:21 and 22 do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? Now that verse is important because it shows that, that man has been on the earth since the beginning of the earth. Man has been aware of God and His greatness since the beginning of time on earth. Our friends who believe in evolution claim that man is kind of a latecomer, that the earth existed some millions of years, and then man, man evolved upon the earth a little bit later. But that's not true at all. But then notice verse 22. This has to do with our, our booklet here. Speaking of the Lord, it is He, the Lord, it is He who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. 
It's the Lord who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent uh, to dwell in. It's just that easy for the Lord to create this earth, create this universe, just like pulling curtains, uh, spreading out curtains, or just uh, think about taking a sheet and just taking it with your two hands and spreading it out over a mattress. It's just that easy for the Lord uh, to create the universe. He is just awesome in power. But notice it says here that he sits above the circle of the earth. Now, what the booklet is bringing out here is that the Bible claims to be of divine origin because of the internal scientific evidence that is found in it. Oftentimes, the Bible speaks of science. It speaks of uh, the remarkable uh, and complex nature of the universe And God speaks of it in his scriptures long before man discovers it. And this is one of those ideals here in Isaiah 40, 22. God sits above the circle of the earth. And the note here is that people during ancient times believed that the earth uh, was flat. But more than that, there is a great comparison here that the people of the earth, the idols of the earth, compared to the great God Almighty are like grasshoppers. Uh, in his side. All right. That's from the field of astronomy, maybe. And then Genesis 6.15 talks about shipbuilding. And so without um, reading that together, this is familiar to us. God giving instructions to Noah concerning building the ark. And the ark was to be, according to Genesis 6 and verse 15, it was to be 300 cubics And then the breadth of it was to be 50 cubits and the height of it 30 cubits. In our language, that's 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, and 45 feet high. Now notice the note here at the bottom of page 4. The ratio that Noah used to build the ark is 30 to 5 to 3. This is the perfect ratio for building a large vessel for seaworthiness and not for speed. Of course, the, the ark was not built for speed because it had nowhere to go. God built the ark for a lot of cargo and for enduring the conditions of the flood. And so, the U.S. Navy used this same ratio to build the SS Jeremiah O'Brien uh, in World War II to carry uh, cargo. Now, the thing is, even way over in World War II, shipbuilders had generations of knowledge to compile together to figure out how to build the best vessel that would endure a wartime situation. But Noah was building the ark. And it was the first of its kind. He had no prior knowledge, no, no prior generation that had worked upon uh, ships or had been involved in the, in the weather and the flood conditions that he was about to face. How could Noah know except from just help from God, uh, divine oversight? How could Noah possibly know uh, what to do? In fact, God tells him uh, what to do. And so that's from Genesis 6, verse 15. So from the area of astronomy, the Bible speaks 
toward uh, scientific knowledge and from the area of shipbuilding, it does the same in the life of Noah. Going on to page now, number five. We want to um, read from Ecclesiastes chapter 1 and also from the book of Amos. So please turn your Bibles to Ecclesiastes uh, chapter 1. Now I do have a special reader tonight, but I'm going to save him until we, until we get over to the book of Leviticus. I'm going to save my special reader tonight whose name is Preston, and he has agreed to read from Leviticus for us. But right now let's look at Ecclesiastes. Uh, chapter 1. This has reference to the water cycle that continues to operate uh, for life here on this earth. Many of you maybe have studied that and maybe you have a great interest uh, in it. I remember a little bit about it from school time, but it involves uh, in, in evaporation. And then it Im- involves transportation of that um, water uh, toward the clouds. And then uh, somehow or another, uh, the evaporation is condensed into uh, raindrops that uh, form in the clouds. And then we get the rainbow. It forms a, it forms a cycle because um, as it rains, the rivers receive the rain, the lakes receive the rain. And then they feed, um, they feed back into the sea. And so it forms uh, an incredible cycle that just continues uh, to operate. Mankind didn't figure this out until about the 16th or 17th century. But notice that years and years, thousands of years before that, uh, Solomon had knowledge of this. From Ecclesiastes 1 and verse uh, 7, All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. So a couple of questions in reference to Ecclesiastes 1, verse 7. First question is, where does the water come? Where does the water from the rivers return? It returns to the sea. And do the seas ever fill up? What's the answer to that? No, the seas never uh, fill up. All right. Now let's look over to Amos chapter 9 in verse 6, and notice a little statement there. Amos chapter 9. Again, this is internal scientific evidence. And a lot of this is evidence that was known by God in His Scripture long before man ever uh, discovered it. So, Amos chapter 9. Verse 6, talking about the power of God, who builds his upper chambers in the heavens and founds his vault upon the earth, who calls, notice this is our statement here, Isaiah 9, verse 6. Amos 9, verse 6, I'm sorry. Notice this last statement of Amos 9 in verse 6. God calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out upon the face of the earth. And so you can kind of picture this water cycle that continues to happen for life on earth to exist. He calls for the waters from the sea and then spreads it upon the face of the earth. So the question here in our booklet, uh, where do the clouds uh, get their rain? Of course, from the sea. And where do the clouds empty themselves? Of course, that is upon the face of the earth. 
The note under this reads, the water cycle is studied by school children all over the world. We have satellite imagery uh, to prove it today, but such technology did not exist during uh, Bible times. Okay. So another little tidbit of evidence that shows that the Bible uh, knows things before man uh, ever became aware of it. And then from Job uh, 38 and verse 24, let's turn over there. Run back to Job uh, 38. This is um, interesting to me. You recall a little bit about uh, the book of Job. It draws us to God and to Job because all that Job suffered and Job um, has, has his experiences there in the early chapters of the book of Job. And then he has some friends to come and visit, which is an interesting study in itself. But all along, Job will mention, I want to hear from God. I want to hear from God. If you look at Job, I think it's chapter 31. Yes, chapter 31, uh, 35. Uh, Job says, Oh, that I had one to hear me. Here is my signature. Let the Almighty answer me. Oh, that I had the indictment written by my adversary. In other words, Job is saying, I'm, I'm still waiting to hear from God. I've heard from all my friends. Uh, I'm trying to commit myself to God. I have committed myself to God, but I still have my internal uh, struggles like anyone else would have. Well, finally, God speaks. And he gives a very stern and knowledge-filled set of questions to Job in chapter uh, 38. He questions Job about several of the workings of the universe. And here in our passage, uh, he he asks Job once again about how weather happens. You know, how does how does how does rain come? How does the lightning uh, come? And and uh, really questioning Job. Uh, if he was there when all this was created. But notice, let's just start at um, Job thirty-eight twenty-two. God asking uh, Job, Have you entered the storehouses of the snow? Have you seen the storehouses of the hail, uh, which I have reserved for time of trouble, uh, for the day of battle and war? In other words, God is saying to Job, He's in Job, I've got a storehouse of snow. I've got a storehouse of hell. Have you seen it, Job? Of course, Job has not seen this. Job's not even aware of it. And, and God can just kind of, uh, as it were, take his hand, open up that door when he feels it's right, and bring the snow and the hell, and he can even use that for judgments against nations if he so uh, desires. Okay. Um, picking up now in verse uh, 24, he asked Job, what is the way to the place where the light is distributed or parted and and where the east wind is scattered upon the earth who has cleft a channel for the torrents of rain and a way for the thunderbolt to bring rain on the land where no man is and on the desert in which there is no man to satisfy the waste and desolate land to make the ground sprout uh, with grass and so our question pertains to verse Uh, 24 here in Job 38. The Lord asked Job if he knew how light is distributed. How is it that lightning comes across the sky? How is it that light appears 
and then diminishes uh, during the day. How is it that it grows dark when it's about to rain and then it can, the sunshine can come back after a, a thunderstorm? How is it all this takes place, Job? Job doesn't have a clue. We don't have a clue. Only the Lord knows uh, what he's doing. Notice the note here at the bottom. When a narrow beam of sunlight passes through a prism, it is divided into a spectrum. This concept was supposedly undiscovered until the time of Sir Isaac uh, Newton. All right. So now on page number six, a more familiar passage to you. Psalm 8 verse 8 talks about the paths of the sea. The paths of the sea. A long time ago, a thousand years before the birth of Jesus, David knew and wrote about the paths of the sea, giving his praise toward God and mentioning this. So you're, you're filling the blank here. So the psalmist declared that there are paths of the sea. Okay. This was very important discovery that was made, and you'll see the note here, by a man by the name of Matthew Fontaine Murray. And this discovery helped travel on the sea uh, immensely. And it's still, um, it's still noted as one of the great discoveries of mankind. But Matthew Fontaine Murray got the idea to look for paths in the sea from his reading of Psalm uh, number 8. So let's read this note together here on page number 6. Uh, Matthew Fontaine Murray is considered the father of oceanography. He read Psalm 8, verse 8, and set out to map the paths of the sea. In 1855, he wrote the, the physical geography of the sea and its meteorology. The first textbook of modern oceanography uh, written. He once said, I have been blamed by men of science, both in this country and in England, for quoting the Bible in confirmation of the doctrines of physical geography. The Bible, they say, was not written for scientific purposes and is therefore no authority in matters of science. Isn't it amazing that man has not really changed over all these years? Here they are back in the mid-1800s throwing doubt upon the scriptures and saying the Bible has nothing to say about our scientific discoveries. Well, this fellow, Matthew Fontaine Murray, he knew better. So he says, I beg pardon to them. I beg pardon. The Bible is authority for everything it touches. That's a great statement. That's a great statement. The Bible is authority on everything it touches. The Bible didn't set out to be a science textbook. But when it mentions science, it says the right thing about science and nature. The Bible doesn't set out to be a book of history per se. But when it touches upon history... It is, it is very accurate concerning what it says about history. I love that statement. The Bible is authority for everything it touches. What would you think of an historian who should refuse to consult historical records of the Bible because the Bible was not written for the purpose of history? He says the Bible is true and science is true. And so this is from uh, some of his writings back in the 1800s. This is another what they sometimes call scientific foreknowledge. Scientific foreknowledge. God, of course God knows. It's really not surprising. God knows about things before man ever discovers uh, these things. And the fact that it is written in the Bible long before its discoveries is an internal evidence that what we're holding in our hand 
are indeed sacred uh, writings. Okay. So notice here are some summary statements on page number seven. The Bible displays divine knowledge when it describes the circle of the earth, of course. Uh, the Bible displays divine knowledge when it recorded the perfect ratio used to build the ark. The Bible displayed divine knowledge to describe the water cycle in a very accurate way. The Bible displays divine knowledge when it informs its readers about the diffusion of light, Job 38:24. And the Bible displays divine knowledge to inform its readers in an accurate, accurate way about the paths of uh, the sea. So that brings us to um, page 8. We're going to try to get to page 12 uh, tonight. This, from page 8 to page 12, um, touches on the medical knowledge that the Bible had before man ever discovered it. And some of this is going to be uh, readings from the book of Leviticus. Preston, I'm going to be asking you to read uh, several passages from Leviticus, uh, chapters uh, chapter 11 especially, but also chapter uh, 17. And then uh, in just a minute when Preston comes before us, we'll be getting him to read Deuteronomy, a, chapter, a verse in Deuteronomy as well. Before Preston comes um, to the Lord's table, Mike here, Uh, Let's think about Genesis 17, verse 12 together. God told Abraham to circumcise male children on what day? The eighth day. That may not seem very important, but except when you discover that the eighth day after a child is born, that is a perfect day, as he says here, uh, for doing this sort of uh, surgery. Note, on day eight, a male has the greatest blood clotting ability in all of life. It is the perfect day to perform surgery. That's not surprising that we would read that because God is the one who created us. And if he's going to give that sort of command, then he's going to set up the day on which that can be performed. By the way, that that presents a principle of God that I have been repeating to myself lately. And that is, God is not going to ask us to do something unless he also sets up the conditions for that to be done. God has not suspended church. God has not suspended the gospel message. He has not suspended his mission. He has not uh, laid aside the good works that we are to be doing. I believe this is a principle that God has um, had um, about his nature all along. And again, I say it. God's not going to have us to be responsible for something and then set up a condition on earth where that cannot be done. And this is a principle that is brought out here from Genesis uh, 17 and verse uh, 12. Now, concerning several instructions about food consumption and other matters of the body, there are some readings here we need to take from Leviticus. So, uh, Preston, if you'll come up and read, first of all for us, Leviticus 17 and verse 15. Leviticus 17 and verse 15. And every person who eats what died naturally or what was torn by beasts whether he is a native of your own country or a stranger, 
He shall both wash his clothes and bathe in water, and be unclean until evening. Then he shall be clean. All right. So from that reading, let's ask this question here. Uh, Did the Bible forbid Israel from eating animals which died naturally or were torn by other beasts? Say it loud. Yes. Yes. And the note here is, due to the risk of disease and contamination, state and local laws prohibit slaughterhouse processing of animals found uh, dead. All right. Uh, Preston, now let's read uh, from Deuteronomy 23, 12 to 14. Deuteronomy 23. Also you shall have a place outside the camp where you may go out and you shall have an implement among your equipment. And when you sit down outside, you shall dig with it and turn and cover your refuse. For the Lord your God walks in the midst of your camp to deliver you and give your enemies over to you. Therefore your camp shall be holy that he may see no unclean thing among you and turn away from you. All right, from Deuteronomy 23, 12, and 13, notice this question. Did the Bible command Israel to bury their human waste? Yes. Okay. And the note along with that um, says here, the Black Plague was a result of improper disposal of human waste. Uh, 13 million people uh, died. Also, I believe... um, I read one time on the Apologetics Press website something similar that there was a there was some sort of epidemic back in um, London, 1846, that was traced to this very same thing that on the streets of London that the waste from human beings was not being disposed of uh, properly, and so God had this knowledge about human beings and disease uh, long before man uh, discovered it. All right. Now let's go back to Leviticus, this time uh, pressing to Leviticus 17, verse 11. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. So a simple question here, where is the life of flesh found according uh, to the Bible? So there was a belief back in the Middle Ages and even onward to the 19th uh, century that um, poisonous vapor would get caught in your bloodstream. And there was a belief back in those days that you could even put these little leeches uh, to suck out the blood that would help you get better or they would even cut your skin to cause you to bleed, which is the note here. Um, when George Washington became ill, doctors drained his blood several times. He died from blood loss. Uh, this treatment was common practice until the 20th century. But God knew long before that and stated it that life for the flesh is in the blood. All right. So several now readings from Leviticus uh, chapter 11. Let's start in verses 2 through 4. Leviticus 11, uh, 2 through 4. Speak to the children of Israel, saying, 
These are the animals which you may eat among all the animals that are on the earth. Among the animals, whatever divides the hoof, having cloven hooves and chewing the cud, that you may eat. Nevertheless, these you shall not eat among those that chew the cud or those that have cloven hooves. The camel, because it chews the cud but does not have cloven hooves, is unclean to you. So question, somebody can yell out the answer here. Uh, God allowed Israel to eat only animals that had a divided what? Hoof. And those who chewed the could. Okay. And the note at the bottom says uh, animals like um, the pig were considered unclean. Today we know pigs carry uh, microscopic parasites sometimes that cause um, that word in humans if the meat is not properly uh, cooked. So let's move on now to Leviticus uh, chapter 11 verses 9 through 12. Again, talking about the food that God wanted his people to eat and not eat. Go ahead. These you may eat of all that are in the water. Whatever in the water has fins and scales, whether in the seas or in the rivers, that you may eat. But all in the seas or in the rivers that do not have fins and scales, all that move in the water or any living thing which is in the water, they are an abomination to you. They shall be an abomination to you. You shall not eat their flesh, but you shall regard their carcasses as an abomination. And so here's the uh, statement in our booklet on page uh, 10. God allowed Israel to eat only aquatic life from the seas and rivers that had blank and blank. The ends and scales. God said anything in the seas and rivers that does not have fins and scales was an abomination uh, to Israel. And then a note to go along with that. All the imported um, fish with um, poisonous flesh lack ordinary scales. Instead, these poisonous fish are covered with bristles or spiny scales, strong, sharp thorns or spines, or are encased in a bony bony box-like covering. Some have naked skin. That is, no spines or scales. So God wanted... Uh, his people to stay away from uh, those type of fish because he knew the poison that was involved. And uh, this is something that was written about in 1944 in the U.S. Navy manual, uh, Survival on Land and Sea. Okay. And then uh, these verses from Leviticus 11, uh, verse 3, and verses 29 through 31. Among the animals, whatever divides the hoof, having cloven hooves and chewing the cud, that you may eat. These also also shall be unclean to you among the creeping things that creep on the earth, the mole, the mouse, and the largest lizard after its kind, the gecko, the monitor lizard, the sand reptile, the sand lizard, and the chameleon. These are unclean to you among all that creep. Whoever touches them when they are dead shall be unclean until evening. God forbade eating reptiles. 
name a few reptiles that are specifically um, specified as unclean. Uh, you notice there in the reading, mole or a rat, a lizard, a gecko, and other uh, such reptiles. God stated these reptiles were unclean, and he forbade touching them even um, even when they were what? The note here is nearly 90% of reptiles are carriers of salmonella, salmonella uh, bacteria. Okay. All right. So we'll let that uh, end our discussion uh, this evening covering uh, this much material. I think you can see what the purpose of this booklet is. It should show that there's no other answer to why the Bible has this sort of knowledge in it other than the fact that God uh, gave this knowledge to those who were involved living for him in these ancient uh, days. Appreciate you working through this. You are welcome, of course, uh, to hold on to this booklet and work through it between now and next Sunday evening. There's one other booklet in this series upon um, Jesus and the proofs there are that he is indeed the Son of God who he claimed to be. You will thoroughly enjoy uh, that booklet as well. What we're trying to do here is, is to think about uh, what it takes to help someone uh, become a Christian and live for Christ. The first three booklets that we studied, uh, the green and red and the blue booklets, remember one booklet was on the authority of Christ and then another booklet was on the church that the Lord established. And then the third booklet was upon um, how, what to do to be saved from our sins. And so suppose someone has doubts even about God himself. Well, these booklets now are designed to bring a person to faith in God, faith in the scriptures, and faith in Jesus as uh, the Son of God. We are um, one of the first congregations to try these. These are brand new booklets. And so this is, this is we are trying this. If you have comments about this or if you have um, recommendations about how to make these booklets uh, better, then certainly we can get those and send these uh, to Brother Rob uh, Whitaker because he's asking us to do just that, uh, to give him some updates and give him some pointers that will help him improve these booklets because that's what he wants to do. He wants these to be in a situation where they can be almost self-teaching uh, in a sense or at least be usable uh, for us to uh, sit down some, with someone and study uh, these things out. As we think about the, uh, the devotional part of our, our time together, if we think about our life before God, think about three things concerning the Word of God. In John 10, 35, Jesus said, The Scripture cannot be broken. And in those chapters in John, Jesus was being attacked by especially Jewish leaders. And this is when He made this very important statement. The Scripture cannot be broken. And ever since the time of Jesus, people have attacked the scriptures. We saw there, even back in the 1800s, people 
Some people of the scientific community did not have great respect for Scripture. Be that as it may, uh, the Bible is still the number one best-selling book. And I believe it always will be. People can see the hope the Bible uh, gives. Men may attack it, and they will. Uh, We may not live up to its standards, and we, we will fail. But we will need to come back to God quickly when we do that. But still, the Scripture cannot be broken. Instead, the Scripture needs to break us. Somewhere back in the book of Psalms, it says... The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart he will not deny. He will not reject. The scripture needs to break us. It needs to humble us. And make us of such a character and heart that we will be better servants of our Lord. And then in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 9, you remember Paul says that he's in prison. He is being treated like a common prisoner. And he's bound in prison, but he says the word of God cannot be bound. So first, the word of God cannot be broken. The word of God cannot be bound. Paul is saying, you may put me in prison. You will kill me. You will, you know, you will... uh, Execute me here shortly, but the Word of God will continue to be spread. People will receive it, obey it, and spread it of themselves. And of that we have a great amount of faith. We are passing through this life. We are to do what we can to share the seed which is the Word of God. And then there will be people who will come after us as long as the world stands. There will be other people. People right now. These young folks sitting in our pews this evening, they are learning the Word of God in a greater way than we ever were able to do. They will take the Word to heart. They will let it sink deep into their souls and they will spread it like no generation has ever spread it before. You cannot bind the Word of God. You can bind us. You can bind a man. You can bind a preacher. You can shoot your arrows at the Word of God. It cannot be broken. It cannot be bound. And then from 1 Peter 1, 24 and 25, Peter says that the grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord endures forever. In fact, he says that our flesh is like grass. And whatever glory we think we are getting in our flesh is like the flower of the grass. And again, he says the grass withers, The flower falls, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And then he says this in 1 Peter 1, 25. This is the good news that I preach unto you. So not only is the word of God cannot be broken, it cannot be bound. It will never be bad. It will never be bad. The word of God is always good news. Can you think of any other source you can go to where you can receive the hope that we all want to have in our souls. The songs that we sang earlier, I just thoroughly enjoyed them. Father alone, Father alone. We were were studying Psalm 73 about Asaph and how Asaph had let the the wicked people of the earth uh, discourage his faith at least for a while. 
And Brother Rogers mentioned Wednesday night after church. He said, you know, the song that goes right along with Psalm 73 and Asaph is Father alone and we'll know all about it. And that's what Asaph uh, remembered. That's what Asaph finally came to realize is that when he went in and really studied God and really sat down and humbled himself to worship God, he remembered that there will be an end to the wicked people. And while he's on earth, he should try to spread the goodness of God. But if he can't reach the wicked people, then God will, uh, he will take care of them at the end. Vengeance belongs to the Lord. I will repay. But we are not to avenge ourselves. And we were singing a little while ago um, about peace. About peace. Peace on earth. And how that even though times around us can be difficult and a lot of times uncertain, we can still enjoy that peace that we have. And we were singing together about Mount Calvary a little bit ago. Years I spent in vanity and pride, knowing not that my Lord was crucified. But in that song, we, we, we sing it and we think about it again and again. All of us had times in our life where we really were not focusing on our Lord Jesus and what He's done for us and how much that ought to mean to every aspect of our life. But now we realize how important it is. A life spent away from the Lord is a life spent in emptiness and vanity. How do we know this? How do we know there's peace with God? How do we know that Father alone will know all about it? How do we know that the cross is so very important to our lives? Because it's found in this book. This book. Think, where would the world be without this book? And so this is why we are studying together and thinking about building our faith and confidence in the Holy Scriptures. And if we can assist one another this evening with any spiritual need, If we need to sit down and study further, if we need to pray together to build one another up, let's think about doing that right now. Can we assist someone in in obeying uh, the Lord and putting Jesus on in baptism? That opportunity uh, awaits right now as well. Let's stand together and sing uh, this good song.